Good evening. I was looking forward to getting here and seeing all the faces now. I, I see quite a few familiar faces in the crowd, but you're going to have to forgive me on names. Um, I'll work on them, though. And, um, and I always look, I like to get to know people by their name. You like it when I call you by your name, and I'm going to try real hard. But I do see a lot of faces here tonight uh, that I remember from being here before. And I remember uh, really enjoying being with your church uh, before. So I'm um, certainly anticipating some good things from the Lord uh, these next couple of days. Well, uh, I have my wife with me this time. Did you see my wife over there? The best half of me is over there, um, and she gets to stay with me till Saturday. Then she'll be going home. But uh, introduce yourself to her, and uh, then she'll know some of the people that I've been talking about when I've been here before. So um, I'm really glad she could be here. We started out from home last Friday, went to Plain City, and stayed the night with one of our married daughters there. And then we traveled to Delaware and spent the weekend with our, one of our married daughters there. And uh, then today we came over into your cold state of Virginia. When we left home, it was nice in Illinois. We thought we were coming to the sunny south. We are not in the sunny south. But um, it was pretty nice in Illinois. But uh, we did enjoy your beautiful state today. We, we came across in 66 from D.C. and then we got on the Skyline Drive. And uh, we've never been up there, as a married couple at least. And uh, we drove that. And it was a pretty nice day for that. So we enjoyed Virginia. I've always liked Virginia. I lived in Virginia for one year in Richmond in voluntary service. That's a long time ago. And I won't tell you how long it was. So, but I'm glad to be here. Well, what do you talk about a weekend like this? Oh, one other thing I was going to mention. Just remembered it. Boys and girls. Tomorrow night, we'll have children's meeting. Now, usually I don't do it the first night because, you know, this is a strange man up here and you don't know him very well and it's a little scary to come up for a children's meeting from someone that you've never met before. But after tonight, you'll kind of get used to me a little bit and then tomorrow night, we'll have a children's meeting and we'll talk about sheep, okay? And if you come back every night, if there's children here, I'll have a children's meeting. There's no children here. I'll probably have one anyway. But because uh, big people like children uh, stories about sheep too. But you know, if you if you'll come back, then maybe you'll bring your parents with you. See, that's kind of the idea. So if I can get you to come, then I bet you'll bring mom and dad. Okay? So be, you'll be here tomorrow night. Okay. What does one share um, when you're approaching a week like this together, a week? half a week. I love the church. And let's be honest, the church is troubled. The church in America is very troubled. I don't know how it is here at Calvary. I really don't. I have not asked your pastors. I know all of your pastors. You have fine men here. I know nothing about your church. And that's kind of good. I like to come kind of with that kind of a openness. But everywhere I go, at home, abroad, makes no difference what denomination you're in. The church in America is troubled, very troubled. But I love the church. I think probably the best thing that 
the Lord would have me do for you this few days we're together. As I would like to nurture your own personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what I'm going to try by God's grace to do. Each night we'll take a scripture and we'll examine that scripture. We'll do exposition from that scripture. And my prayer is the Holy Spirit would take those words and reach down into your inner being and help you. I think probably one of the reasons why we're troubled as a church, as churches, probably has something to do with our culture and our government. I don't want to make a political scene tonight at all, but our government is out of control. And that affects the church. Our culture has lost its bearings. And that affects the church. I, I wish it didn't as much as it did, but it, it, but it does. But I would just quickly add, when cultures get like ours, it really, it really is a golden opportunity for us. Because it makes the difference between us and them much different. <laughs> and we really ought to be brighter lights. And I think we're going to have some wonderful opportunities. If we are the people we ought to be, I think we'll have some wonderful opportunities. So yes, I know it's kind of discouraging, but it really doesn't have to stay that way. I have to battle it. I have to work with it, probably just like you. But I think God has some exciting days ahead for us. We want to use them wisely. Tonight, my topic is why does the church need revival? That's my topic. Why does the church need revival? How would you explain revival? Let, let me give you a couple of quotes, what other people have said about revival. This one is from a man by, by the name of D.M. Panton. He says, revival is an inrush of divine life into a body threatening to become a corpse. End of quote. I kind of like that. Now you have to think about it just a little bit. It's an inrush of divine life into a body that's threatening to become a corpse. Kind of like that. Here's one from the Bible itself. Acts 3.19. Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. When the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. I like that. The times of refreshing, when they shall come from the presence of the Lord. Revival comes from the presence of the Lord. Times of refreshing, I like that. Now, one thing to remember about revival, there can be no revival if there is not first a life to revive. Would you agree with that? I mean, you can't revive something that doesn't have life to begin with. And so there must first be a life to revive. Let me talk to you a little bit about Christmas Evans. He was a famous Welsh evangelist. God used this man on several occasions to stir the nation of Wales to revival. And here's what he had to say about revival. Revival is God bending down to the dying embers of a fire just about to go out and breathing into it until it bursts into flame. 
Now, boys and girls, do you remember, have you ever been around a fire and, and you'll see this bed of coals, they're red hot. And if you kind of just bend down close and you kind of go blow on that, have you ever done that? If your fire is just about go out and if you bend down and you blow on the coals, they kind of they kind of get brighter and you can actually get a flame going again if you blow long enough usually there's enough embers there and that's kind of the concept here it's god bending down and blowing blowing on his people when the fire is going out i like that concept and here's a man who must have known what he was talking about in 1904 revival swept the country of wales in many of the towns and villages of Wales, they actually had to close the local jails because they didn't have any customers. Can you imagine that when revival would so sweep your town that you just didn't need the county jail? That would be unique, wouldn't it? For Harrisonburg, just like it would be in Illinois. Crime and vice just simply disappeared because people were changed, they were revived. And when the church got revived, they changed their neighbors and brought them to Christ. They had a major problem in the mines. It was a mining country, Wales. They couldn't get the donkeys to pull the carts out of the mines. You know why? Because all the donkeys knew were cursing and swearing in the crack of the whip. And when revival came to Wales, that all stopped and the donkeys wouldn't move. Now that's an interesting problem. That's an interesting problem. I never, I never read how they ever solved the problem. But you know, that's interesting. The donkeys only knew to respond to cursing and swearing in the crack of a whip. And these people got changed. They started using that, stopped using that language and the donkeys didn't know what to do. Does God have something bigger for us tonight than what we're experiencing? What do you think? Perhaps you can remember a time when God was very active in your life. Perhaps you remember a time when his power was moving in your church. Exciting things were happening and mountains were being moved in people's personal lives. Do you remember that kind of a time? Maybe it's happening now. Wouldn't it be thrilling to get to that point where we could hardly wait to go to church? Is that the way it is? I'm not asking for hands. But when, when church time comes, is there that anticipation, I can hardly wait to get there, to be with the people of God and to hear what God has to say to us as a body? Whatever happened in Wales... What happened that they had to open the doors of the jails again? What happened? Why is it that we cannot hold on to those things, those high points, when God speaks to us and moves in our hearts? Why is it that we cannot hold on to them? Why do we let them go? The answer, I believe, can be found in the Holy Scriptures. Now that's a long introduction to my message, but I do believe the answer can be found in the Holy Scriptures as we study the history of God's people. 
Tonight, I ask you to turn to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 2. We want to answer this question tonight. The purpose of the message is to answer this question. What is it that causes us to move away from a thriving relationship with God? What is it? What causes us to move away from a thriving relationship with God? Now, here in the book of Jeremiah is a precious text. Now, it may not mean a lot when I read it to you the first time, but we're going to spend some time. We're going to spend the rest of the night looking at these about four or five verses. In chapter 2, I'd like to begin reading at verse 9. Here is the text. Wherefore, I will yet plead with you, saith the Lord, and with your children's children will I plead. For pass over the isles of Chittim, and see, and send unto Kedar, and consider diligently, and see if there be such a thing. Hath a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. Be astonished, O ye heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be ye very desolate, saith the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountains, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. That is our text for the evening. May the Lord bless this holy word to our hearts tonight. Wherefore, I will yet plead with you, saith the Lord. When the Holy Spirit chooses words like, I will plead with you, you ought to sit up and take notice and listen. God has something very, very important to say to you when he says, I will plead with you. Illustration. Have you ever, moms and dads, sat down with one of your children, usually when they're teenagers, and you say, I want to plead with you. Have you ever gone to a brother and sister in Christ, said, I would like to plead with you? Do you not hear the, the agony of God's heart? And the throb of his heart in, in this scripture it says, I'm pleading with my people, and I'm pleading with your grandchildren. And that's what God is doing to all of us tonight. He's pleading with us. There is agony in his heart, and he is making a plea, listen to what I have to say. That's what he's saying. Now, in this context, I'm not going to take the time to read the earlier part of the chapter, but in the context, God is bending over his people, and then he's saying, I remember a different time than this. He says, I remember a very intimate time with you. I remember my people when you walked with me and you heard me. I remember that kind of a time. See, in the Bible, God compares his relationship with people, his people, to a marriage. 
It's always been that way. He refers to his people. His people were his bride, and we are the, the church is the bride of Christ. He's, he's reminding them of that intimate relationship that they had once had with him. He just reminds them in this chapter of a time when they were so in love with him. Ladies, do you remember when you were first married to your husband or perhaps right before you were married to him? Do you remember how you would go anywhere with just to be with him, wherever he went? You, you, you would go anywhere with him just to be with him. Remember that? And now you say, yeah, but look at him today. <laughs> I remember that. Look at him. He snores and he's bald. And, you know, that's what my wife says. You know, he's bald. He doesn't have any hair. I used to have hair. I really did, boys and girls. Lots of it. And how about you men? Do you remember that time? That excitement when you drove your car in that lane where that young lady lived that you were courting? Do you remember that excitement and the excitement of seeing her come out of the house? And you would do about anything just to be around her. Do you remember the time when she put her hand for the first time in yours? Remember how soft it seemed and how small compared to yours? And remember what that did? It just went, you know, it just that's the way it works. Now, that's maybe a bit crude, but I think it does illustrate the point that God is making in this text. He remembers that kind of a time when his people were that excited about him. He says, I plead with you, and I plead with your grandchildren. He says, I've got a challenge for you now. That challenge is in verse 10. Pass over the isles of Chittim and see and send into Kedar, two countries. Said, look at these two countries. Consider diligently and if see if there be such a thing. Hath a nation changed their gods which are yet no gods? Said, look at these two countries. They both serve gods. You notice a small g. Notice that? Here are two countries that serve false gods. They've served these gods generation after generation after generation. Have they ever changed those gods? They're still serving the false gods that they've served generation after generation after generation. Now, these gods are man-made. <laughs> They're usually made of wood or stone or iron. They have no power. They're not even real. They are not alive. They cannot breathe. They can't even think. And yet... Consider the fidelity of these people to that God, that false God. Consider their fidelity. 
Have they changed their gods? That's what he's saying. He said, I challenge you. Have they changed their gods? But look what he says then in the last part of verse 11. But my people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. But here are my people. They know the one true and only God. They've been exposed to him. They've seen his power. They've known his power. The only true God. They've known that true God, me. And they have given that relationship up. See, that's what he's saying. You, you've, given, you've given that relationship up. And then God calls on the heavens to be a witness to this in verse 12. Be astonished, O ye heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be ye very desolate, saith the Lord. He says he calls on the heavens that are above all these nations. He says, look down at what has happened. He said, what has happened is unthinkable. It's horrible. It's beyond comprehension that a people who knew the only true God have given that relationship up. And these other people, these two nations, keep worshiping this false God that can't even hear or think. And they, have, they are still worshiping that God. And he calls on the heavens. He said, it's unthinkable that this has happened. Be a witness to it. And so it is today. The followers of Muhammad and Allah are far more loyal to him than many are to Christ. I wish I didn't have to say that. I didn't say then all are to Christ. I said then many are to Christ. Do you remember 9-11? We all remember 9-11. Do you remember what those men were saying as they flew those airplanes into those towers? What were their last words? Akbar is great. Akbar is great. That's what they were shouting. Akbar is the name for their God. They died a horrible death. And when within seconds, they learned that they had been worshiping a false god. They had been worshiping a god who did not exist. They were serving the wrong god. But I give that illustration to illustrate to you their fidelity to their God. Why does this happen? Why are they often more loyal than the people of God to the one true God? Let's think about that a little bit. I think it needs to be answered. All false gods are man-made. When a man makes a god, he makes a god according to his own thinking. 
he tends to make a God sort of like himself, an enlargement of himself, an enlargement of his own imperfections. See, people dream up gods. They come up with ideas about how God ought to be. And so man makes a God that pleases his own nature, a God he would like to have often. Let me illustrate this this way. How do you get a man to be a suicide bomber? Any volunteers? <laughs> to be a suicide bomber. How do you get a man to do that? I'll tell you how they do it. One of the ways, this isn't the only way, but their major way they do it. They tell the man there will be 72 virgins waiting for him when he dies. Now see, that appeals to the sensual nature of a man. See, they make a God according to their own imperfections that pleases them. That appeals to a man with a very sensual nature. Here's a man very full of lust. Here's a man with a bad marriage. You do this, you fly your plane into the tower, you will have 72 virgins. And they do it. Contrast that. to the call of God, our God, upon us. That's not how God appeals to us. He doesn't appeal to our lowest nature. Our God is holy. Our God is pure. Our God is love. He calls us always to a higher plane. He calls us to something greater than ourselves, always to something higher. That's the call of our God. He doesn't appeal to our lowest nature. He calls us to a higher plane, to live on a higher level. He does not consent to what is impure, what's in evil, what is evil. He's always calling us to walk on a higher plane. I think this is why Israel failed. I think it's why we fail. We don't respond to God, to his call to walk on a higher plane. We're too content to live on a lower plane. And we'll fail if we do that. God always calls us higher to him who's holy and loving and righteous. He calls us to take up the cross and to follow him. But that is met with resistance on my part and yours. And that brings me to verse 13, which I believe is the key. My people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and two, hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. Now I'm going to make a statement that 
once in a while, I say something like this at home, you know, here's something that I think I've put a lifetime into learning. Do you ever come to that point? You think, I've spent all my life learning this. You get an insight from God, and, and it's so precious, and you feel like, I look back on my whole life, and I think I've been learning this my whole life. Here's one of those, for whatever it's worth. The root cause of all spiritual lapse, all spiritual backsliding, whatever term you want to use, the root cause of all of that is the desire for independence. I really believe it is. I think that's the root cause of why I and you don't keep up that thriving relationship. It's that desire for independence. I'm gonna show you that in verse 13. That's, this is where I learned it. It's in this verse, I surprised myself. I surprised myself. But that's the word of God. I think that's what verse 13 is all about. Let me approach this verse this way. Think back to your initial born-again experience. For some of you, that might not be long ago. For some of you, it may be years ago. That initial born-again experience. You remember that time when you became keenly aware of how sinful you were? Do you remember that? You know, you were so aware you were so sinful. And you tried to do right, you couldn't do it. And you tried again and you couldn't do it. And you came to the conclusion you were a sinner through and through. And you knew. You knew you were lost. You knew you were going to hell. Do you mind me saying it that way? Don't you remember that? You knew you were headed for a lost eternity. And then you've learned and understood that there was someone that could save you from all of that. And when you respond to that and you ask God to save you through his son, Jesus Christ, you experience that wonderful born-again experience. You are totally new. At that point, you understood that you were totally dependent upon Jesus Christ. There was no other way. Don't you remember that? There is no other way, and you knew it. That's why you came to Christ. If there was another way, you'd have taken that way. And then when you came to him, he changed you and you knew it was real. Unfortunately, for all of us, and I don't think there's any exceptions to this, sooner or later, there is something that rises up within man and clamors to be independent. We were dependent and we knew it. But there is something that comes up within me and I start taking my own way and somehow think I can do it myself. It clamors for this thing of independence. 
and we do then exactly what the children of Israel did in verse 13. We do this. We do the very thing they did. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Do any of you have a spring on your property? Any of you got a spring on your property? There's one. Okay, there's several, okay. We don't have many springs in Illinois, a few. Not many. I would think in the Shenandoah Valley you would have some springs. I think every parent here ought to take your children to a spring. I think every person ought to see a spring. Maybe it's just me, but I love springs. There's something so exciting about spring. A spring is water that comes up out of the ground. You, you can't tell why it comes up. It just comes up and it just it bubbles and it bubbles and it bubbles and it just keeps flowing and flowing and flowing. And it's cold and it's clean and it's fresh, usually, unless it's been contaminated. I've seen very few springs that are not like that. I've seen a few in Yellowstone. They weren't fresh water. But, um, most of the springs you would have here in Shenandoah Valley, I bet, are pretty fresh. That's living water. That's what you call living water. Water's rising from springs. They're fresh and they're flowing. Now, what's a cistern? Probably you boys and girls don't know what cisterns are. Don't have many cisterns. A cistern's a big tank, a great big tank of water, and we usually bury them under the ground. Now we put a gutter on our house and the water when it rains comes off the roof, goes in the gutter, down the downspout, down into a tile under the ground, into this tank. It's called a cistern. And a cistern is a place where you store water. It holds water. It's very different from a spring. You see a cistern that water, when it comes out of the sky, is fresh. I understand that. But once it runs down your gutter and into the tile and into this holding tank, it becomes stagnant. It becomes dead, so to speak. It's not alive like a spring. It's not living. Now, if it's underground, it's covered. It doesn't turn green. It's exposed to the sunlight, it will. But it still becomes it begins to deteriorate the moment it goes in there. Now, that's the difference between a spring and a cistern, and those are the two terms that the Holy Spirit uses in verse 13. Now, when we become independent, which is our nature, we remove ourselves from God, who is the source and the only source of living water. That's what we do. We remove ourselves from the source of living water. However, you do that. You remove yourself from God, the source of living water, but that doesn't mean that you no longer thirst because God has created you in such a way you're always going to thirst. You're always going to want water, physically and spiritually. But if you're not near God, you, that's the only source of living water, you're going to have to do something to get water. And so you know what you do? And you know what I do? We hew out cisterns. We make cisterns. We try to store something that we're no longer receiving from God. We, we try to live in the past. We try to get it from other places. Something we try to store it and keep it. 
because we're not near the spring. We're not near the living water. We're not getting the fresh water, but we're thirsty, so we've got to have water. So we hew out. We make cisterns. We find ways to get along. See, man-made ways. But you know what I like about this verse? It's totally accurate. It's inspired by God. Look, look what it says. They've hewed them out cisterns. What kind? Broken cisterns. That's not an accident. That's put there by the Spirit of God. Every cistern that a man hews out is always broken. Always. Always. It won't hold water. When you and I begin to take our own way and go independent from God, we forsake the living waters just like his people did. And we start hewing out our own cisterns. Now let me just interject this one little thing. It is important to remember your past. There is some value in that. I'm not totally disqualifying that. You ought to remember where you came from, and you need to remember what God has done for you in the past. That helps you get through some tough times. But you can't grow on past experiences alone. For growth, you've had to have, you have to have living water. Can you remember that? The past is helpful. Don't forget it. But if you think you can just store everything up and just live on that, You'll never grow. You've got to get back to the living water. Do you remember what Jesus said? If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. If any man thirst. Do you remember what he told the woman at the well? He said, if you, these, these are my words. If you knew who was talking to you, <laughs> referring to himself, Thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Remember that? That's Jesus. You don't grow any other way. The purpose of this challenge tonight is not to condemn you. That is not my thrust. The purpose tonight is deliverance. The piercing, searching word of God, its purpose is not to crush us. It's to lift us to new heights. It's to revive that love relationship like you had with your new bride or your new husband. It is to revive that dependent relationship that you had with him when you first came to Christ, when you knew you were needy and you knew you needed him. Why do we need revival? Because you and I are independent people. <laughs> That's very blunt, but it's very true. It's very true. May God 
Help us in these next number of days to be drawn to the source of living water and stay there and stay there and be revived. Let's pray together. Father, it's so amazing to take a text from the Old Testament, such as the book of Jeremiah that we read over time and again and miss its meaning. Father, thank you for using your Holy Spirit to show us tonight that we are very much like your people in years past. Lord, we wish we weren't so independent, but we have been. And we have forsaken thee, the fountain of living waters. And we've gone about to hew out our own cisterns to store up water. And we don't grow that way. And we confess that to you tonight. And so we come to you tonight knowing once again we are totally dependent upon you. And so I pray that you'd help us all to just realize afresh, Lord, we need you. Lord, we cannot live without you. And Lord, we never grow without you. So Father, in your mercy, see fit to remember us tonight as we drink from the living well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.